Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Uh, Kieran, just so you know, I might be interrupted halfway through this call because I'm, I'm expecting a visit from Howard Webb at any moment to apologise to me on behalf of all Palace fans for imposing another Mark Clattenburg on us. Mark Clattenburg, in his autobiography when he retired, uh, <coughs> stroke was chased out of football by Palace fans wielding pitchforks and burning torches. Mark Clattenburg had the decency to say, uh, uh, fans of every club hated me, especially Crystal Palace. But it turns out uh, they were right to do so because the two biggest mistakes I ever made in football was against them, including in the FA Cup final. Uh, I look forward to Darren England's autobiography when that comes out because it wasn't just yesterday. Oh, no, it wasn't just yesterday. Uh, I might keep referring to it, Kieran. I've I've accepted I'm going to get an angry tweet from the Referee Support Association, but I'm going to deal with it because I'm still... (laughs) Curious myself. How was your day, Kieran, apart from uh, winning 3-1 away at Old Trafford? And, uh, are you top of the table now? Oh, no, Man City is still top. Of uh, no, we're, we're, we're top four. We'll, we'll settle for that. Yeah, top four. Yeah, it, it, when, yeah it, it was a great day out. I, I met dodgy Pete Brooks, uh, who I used to play cricket with. And he, you and I are both old enough to remember that photograph from 1978 of a Manchester United fan with a dart in his nose. Well, that is Dodgy Pete. Is that Dodgy Pete? That's Dodgy. That's Dodgy Pete. And and Pete and I, uh, we uh, we played cricket together for for Trafford Cricket Club for many a year. And, and he's known as Dodgy Pete because his uh, his calling of singles was legendarily dodgy, and it resulted in huge numbers of runouts and huge numbers of toys out of the pram when you get back to the get back to the the the, uh, the room. With the rest of the lads, so yes, he, he's uh, but he, he was a great guy, and he's he works uh, as as one of the senior stewards at uh, at Old Trafford, and, and he's a thoroughly decent bloke and, and a proper red as well. Well, the, the irony is, Kieran, being that the, the day he got the dart in the nose, he clearly wasn't dodgy enough, was he? <laughs> I would have I would have hoped that's why he was called Dodgy Beat, as he failed to dodgy a dart coming against Irish. It is the most I would urge younger fans to Google that photograph. It's it's. You couldn't get a more distressing graphic representation of what football could be like. It wasn't always like that, as that photograph. But what I love about that photograph, Kieran, if, if there is anything to love about a photograph of a man with a dart in his face, is how philosophical he looks about it. He's, <laughs> he looks totally unruffled by the fact. It looks like it's an everyday occurrence. The two policemen next to him who are trying to help look horrified, and he's just like, come on, lads, pull it out. I've got a game to watch here. Um, this is... <laughs> I haven't said this for a while, Kieran, but we've written the BAFTA off with this one already, haven't we? Yes. I was hoping to find out some interesting insights into football finance, but instead we found out a man was called Dodgy Pete because he used to run people out of cricket. Um, it's questions day, Kieran, and we have some cracking questions as usual, but um, we have one very, very big news story to get into, and we, we hinted at it happening in our last pod, and it seems, it seems Kieran, that it has happened now. Uh, so Everton fans will be possibly jumping for joy. Possibly, possibly not. Um, you're absolutely right. We've we've been discussing Everton's financial issues in, in a few recent uh, in a few recent shows. 
Um, there was an announcement on the club website at 10 a.m. on Friday morning. So, um, you know, like many people in the game, we, we, we get a little bit of advance notice um, in respect of that. So it was very much, you know, stand by your beds, um, news incoming. And what Everton have announced is that Farhad Mashiri, the owner, has agreed to sell his shares. Now, he owns 94% of the club to the American investment fund 777 Partners. Now, this seemed quite a big U-turn because he's been saying for a, for a long period of time, I'm only looking for minority investment. I'm only looking for um, another partner to put money into the club. And in a fairly long press release, he was saying it's now impossible for somebody as an individual to effectively own a football club because of the influence of hedge funds, because of the influence of sovereign wealth funds and so on. Um, and that certainly has some credence, but not 100%. Me, Fahad Mishiri's put £750 million into Everton. So that was the announcement. But in I think it's fair to say in, in the 24 to 48 hours before and also since then, it's not been wholly welcomed. Uh, you've got some investigative websites such as Josie Ma. Uh, our good friend Matt Slater has done uh, a good summary of 777. Um, one of the Everton fans who goes by the name of The Esk, uh, he is very forensic in his analysis of everything to do with Everton from a financial point of view. I think it's fair to say that he's been underwhelmed as well. So I think the first thing we've got to say is, well, how come we have this negative reaction to 7-7, or at least a very lukewarm one, because Farhad Mashiri's reign, a lot of money into the club, yes. Success, no. So I think Everton fans are, are, are disappointed. Um, if you take a look at the background of 7-7-7 partners, so we've, we've got Josh Wander. He is um, flamboyant, shall we say, uh, charismatic. Uh, or he, he wears a baseball cap with a suit. Um, you know, however you want to describe it. He's he, that, he's he that has, charismatic. He's wow. that charismatic wow. indeed. He's a character, isn't he? <laughs> That's right. Um, he is the guy that uh, I think it's fair to say uh, had a brush with the law in his youth. And, and we've said, you know, we, we've all done uh, silly things in our youth. Uh, you know, I, I once had to do attend a speed awareness course because I drove at 35 miles an hour in a 30, 30 mile an hour zone. So yeah, you know, I had to take take on the, the full weight of the punishment of the law. Um, his was cocaine trafficking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, kid. I'm not. I'm not laughing at the crime. I'm laughing at the way you segued from your speed management awareness course into what his crime was. You, that's, you did that like a polished stand up comedian, here. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm learning from the master. Um, but if you take a look at some of the accusations which have been levelled at 777 Partners, and this has come from the report from Josie Ma, they are investigative journalists. You know, I'm not in a position, you're in a position to say yay or nay to these. Um, the accusations in, involve fraud, kidnapping, extortion, predatory lending, and racketeering, um, which is 
quite a, a broad brush of, of accusations. And therefore, the, the guarantee that this deal will go through is, is uncertain. But they do own other football clubs. They do have minority and majority investments elsewhere. They've got a minority investment in Sevilla, who are presently bottom of La Liga. They own shares in Standard Liège, but there was a demonstration against their ownership from Standard Liège fans as recently as a week or two ago. They were on this show as recently as, as last Sunday from a concerned Australian fan in respect of Melbourne victory. So there, there's a lot of baggage to do with them. They're also involved with British basketball. And I'll just say Google it um, because there appears to be one or two outstanding issues which they will say have all been resolved. So, so you know, it, it doesn't look like uh, a smooth transition here. The Premier League has an obligation under the owners and directors test to investigate the background of the owner and also whether, A, they have sufficient money to um, take over the club and B, where is the source of that money? So as far as I'm aware, the Premier League will now start its its process. And with, with that in mind, and also with the Premier League still very, very opposed to the idea of an independent regulator, the Premier League will see this as an opportunity to prove to the outside world that we can keep our own house in order, we can self-regulate, and to try to, to minimise the impact of the um, takeover from a negative point of view. So the Premier League Premier League is, is riding more than one horse with respect to this. As far as what they're buying is concerned, I've seen uh, and things going from as little as one pound to acquire the club up to 500 million uh, as far as the amount going to Farhad Mashiri. So that, that's quite significant. But I think the elephant in the room is the existing debts of Everton. So they owe money to a company called Rights and Media Funding Limited, um, which is an unusual. And now Rights and Media Funding have lent to West Ham in the past. But when I go to company's house to look about, look up about rights and media funding, and as you know, there's no better way to spend a Sunday morning, um, it turns out that rights and media funding itself has no employees. It's effectively got no assets apart from the loans to companies. And so it's got £300 million worth of loans to, to people to whom it's lent money. And you go, well, where has it got that money from? Rights and media funding have borrowed three hundred million pounds from somebody else. Now, who is it borrowed from? We, we don't know for certain. But again, doing a bit of companies' house-related work, it's to companies based in the Bahamas and to companies based in Cyprus, both of which are not known for their transparency when it comes to financial affairs. So, all of that looks a little bit uncomfortable. There's a further loan to a company called MSP Holdings, which is US-based. They, they lent around about £140 million to the stadium company, the company that's building Bramley Mordock. Um, and, and that company's paying £20 million interest a year on the loans. What's that? So 
where are Everton in terms of their finances? Well, they've just borrowed 140 million. People say, well, everything's fine and dandy. But again, if you read Matt Slater's article in The Athletic, that money effectively is already gone because that's gone to the contractors, Lang O'Rourke. And I think Matt Slater was, was sort of intimating that there are IOUs now starting to stack up in respect of money owed to, to Lang O'Rourke. Is Farhad Mashiri going to put more money into Everton at a time when he's trying to sell the shares? Well, it, it's a bit like if your house is up for sale, are you going to have a new kitchen fitted once you've agreed the deal? And, and the chances are you'd probably say no. So there's an awful lot of baggage here and, and there's an awful lot of hurdles to be overcome before this deal can go through. And yeah, and that's ignoring the, the fact that the Premier League might say, we're not comfortable about this anyway. <clears throat> Two quick things, Kieran, before I come back to Everton. Um, first of all, for the love of God, will you please say Melbourne? Did you not see those? Oh, oh yes, yeah, sorry. sorry yeah. Apparently it's not Melbourne. Remember the stick we got in? For, well, well, I got in for calling Plymouth Plymouth when we were in Plymouth. The people of Plymouth didn't like Plymouth being called Plymouth because they said, you don't call Crystal Palace Crystal, do you? So it turns out the people of Melbourne, Melbourne, <clears throat> quite, quite, you know, they're entitled to pronounce the city the way they want to, Kieran. So let's stick to Melbourne. This, this three hundred million pound loan from rights immediately to West Ham. So presumably, that company are, are charging West Ham higher interest rates for that loan than they are being charged themselves, and that would be standard business practice. So would it? it or am I completely wrong there? Yeah, you know, you're 100% correct. You, you work on margins. You, you you borrow cheap and you, and you lend high. And that's that's that, that that's how all banks work. If you think about the money that you earn on your ISA or the money that you'll get from your current account and compare that to overdraft rates or compare that to the rates that you'll be charged on your credit card, it's all a case of, of, of borrowing money cheap and, and lending higher if, if you are the nature of a, of a financial institution. Well, on Everton then, Kieran, I'd be really interested to hear your answer on this because you you said the valuation has been somewhere between one pound, which is a huge old moment, and five hundred million. And I was going to ask you how much because even five hundred million, I, I thought that seemed quite low for a club with the size and reach of Everton. Where where do you think the true value of Everton club, Everton Football Club is? Well, Newcastle United with a 50,000 capacity stadium, which was already there, was sold for £300 million less than two years ago. Whoever acquires Everton Football Club will have to pay for the remainder of the stadium. So that's a significant cost. If the loans are going to roll over, then they're going to have to repay those loans as well. Now, both rights and media funding and MSP holdings are likely to have what we refer to as a change of control clause, which means that if the ownership of the company to which they've lent changes, then they could demand immediate repayment. And we're probably talking somewhere in the region, those two loans, you know, the thick end of 300 million as well. So you've got a stadium which is going to cost you probably another couple of hundred million to complete. You've got 300 million pounds worth of loans, which you're going to have to deal with. You're half a billion pounds out already. So you're also acquiring a football club where there has been, and this isn't a football show, but I think it's fair to say there's been underinvestment as far as the playing staff are concerned. 
uh, in the course of the, of the last couple of years. Now, that partly is due to Everton being on the brink of breaching financial fair play, although yeah, they have signed, they did sign a, a striker this summer. And there is an ongoing investigation into Everton's finances from the Premier League with regards to financial fair play compliance, and we don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. Under those circumstances, I wouldn't be willing to pay a, a large amount of money because there's. whenever you look at any type of business deal, you look at the element of uncertainty involved, and there are huge uncertainties here. What's going to be the reaction of the existing lenders? How much is it going to cost to complete the stadium? What's the position with regards to are there any outstanding monies owed to the contractors? Premier League investigation, you know, that's you look at that and you go, well, it would take a, a either a very confident or a very speculative person to want to, to buy those uh, club under those circumstances. And you can't see them. You know, I can't see somebody writing out Farhad Mashiri a check for half a billion pounds to say, well, look, you've you've spent a lot of money. You've signed the likes of Chet Tosin and so on. But, yeah, that, that's that's that money's gone. You know, you're not going to recover that. Um, and therefore... Uh, I would be tempted to go towards the lower end of the spectrum. And finally, on this story, Kieran, and I've, it, it's a huge story for many reasons, and I think we're right to spend some time on it. You mentioned the lukewarm reaction from Everton fans, and it's not just those Everton fans who have a um, forensic knowledge of accounting, like Esk, for example. In general, if you look at the social media, Everton fans are slightly uneasy about this. And I think, of course, that's partly due to the, the well-known criminal background of one of the people there but also I think it's in, in general as you alluded to um, the, the fact that so far they haven't been particularly good owners of clubs and not a great um, and I'm, I, I'm really worried that phrase you use predatory lending if I was an Everton fan I'd be terrified to hear that what it, is this what we talked about with Melbourne last week that, that you, you you loan somebody money that you think they probably won't be able to to pay back and therefore you 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 will end up with the assets is that what it means yes it, it, it's lending to people in distressed financial circumstances right okay um so you're absolutely right there the, the, the a significant proportion of evertonians on social media are saying this doesn't represent our values of our club and you know evertonians are very proud they, they always refer to themselves as being the senior club in the city and and it is seen as being a local club, you know, in, in, and that's not that, that's not having a dig at other clubs who are more global in in nature, um, but it is seen you know, as very much a proud part of the city, and, and the fans are are rightly very uh, defensive of anybody who's going to be the custodian. And if you take a look at some of the comments from Josh Wander, uh, the sort of the, effectively the, the face of Seven 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 Partners. He is very much going down the lines of, I want to increase the commercialization of football. Um, I, I, it's, it's all to do with making money and lip service being paid to the football club, which ultimately is the most important thing here. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and of course, it plays into the hands of those conspiracy theorists who go and see yeah, another potential American owner of a Premier League club not far away from the 14. So we've spent a lot of time on this question, Kieran. We've spent nearly as long as um, Darren England took to not overturn his wrong decision yesterday. So 
let's move on. It was about four hours, I believe it was in the end. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Let's move on to questions. Our first question comes from David Scott. Um, and this is a question that's been bubbling under for a while. People talking about this because there has been, we've mentioned it ourselves. David Scott points out there's been talk about Qatar sports investment looking to invest in a Premier League team in recent months. But what are the rules around owning a club like PSG and also investing in the potential Champions League competitor? And we talked about this with, with Brighton and having to divest their ownership of Union Saint-Gerard, didn't we? Yes, I think the rules are quite unequivocal as far as UEFA is concerned. So if QSI chooses to invest in a Premier League football club and that club qualifies for a UEFA competition, there's going to be issues going forwards. Now, we have seen Red Bull manage to persuade UEFA that having RB Salzburg and RB Leipzig, the RB just happens to be a coincidence <laughs> yeah, a bit like AFC Wimbledon and AFC Bournemouth but I think and how they managed to, to, to get UEFA to go oh right yeah okay that's yeah, fair enough we'll, we'll take we'll take that one on board um as uh, Severin the uh, the chief honcho at UEFA I think he's making it quite clear that he's not willing to allow multi-club ownership models one of the things which I think will set uh, UEFA's competitions apart from the Saudi Pro League is that uh, the PFI now effectively owns four clubs in the Saudi Pro League. And when they are recruiting players, it's very much a case of the PFI says, yeah, we want one talismatic talismanic striker at each of those clubs. So you, know, you have Ronaldo, you have Benzema, you have such and such. Yeah, and, and I think this is part of the fear that, that Liverpool fans have, or yeah, one of those PFI clubs doesn't have this, uh, this very high-profile striker. So could it be Mo Salah? Yeah, so you can understand 
the, the reservations that exist elsewhere in football. Because if PFI can effectively allocate players like a you know, like a, a school teacher would do. Yeah, you, know, you, you remember you remember when, when the school teachers would suddenly say, right, you're playing in that team, you're playing in that team to try to get some form of matchup. Well, that that takes away some of the independence of football clubs. So with regards to QSI, I don't think they will get very far if they go and buy a senior club in, in the Premier League, one that is capable of playing um, in Europe. But there are other people in Qatar who could be deemed to be the owners who are independent of QSI in exactly the same way. We, we've spoken about the Premier League having uh, potentially 10 owners as a result of the, the offer for Everton. But um, they are at least seen to be independent of one another. Uh, yeah, there's no way that uh, you would ever expect a stitch up between Manchester United and Liverpool and Arsenal with regards to results. And yet, yet all three of those clubs are owned by American individuals. Um, so I think we have to be a little bit cautious. Is there the opportunity for somebody to be independent of QSI, as Sheikh Jassim potentially could be, with regards to the Manchester United takeover? Yes, there is. Will there be a degree of cynicism if Manchester United end up playing PSG in the Champions League in a year or two and Yes, expect that to be the case, but wait and see. <clears throat> the recent history has shown us, Kieran, that if the QSI do want to win the Champions League, then they're going to need to buy an English club to do it because PSG don't look like uh, doing it for them any day. So are you excited, Kieran? Are you looking forward to your first European game? Big game coming up on Thursday, AEK Athens? I- I'm absolutely delighted. Um, at the same time, I'm sort of mildly devastated with regards to our first away fixture in Marseille. So I, I was all set to to buy a ticket on Friday, uh, you know, cause I've got, I've got a few loyalty points, so I'm pretty much guaranteed a ticket uh, if I choose to buy one. And then I think an hour or two before uh, the, my, my ticket allocation came up, um, Aslef announced a driver's strike. Now I'm teaching in Liverpool, um, and getting down, to it, and the the strike is taking place the day before we play the match, and now it's just looking next to impossible. I, I won't be able to get home on the Wednesday. Uh, after relying on a, on a flight on the Thursday, then there's issues, you know, because I'll have a week's worth of luggage already with me because my my apartment sale has not, not fallen through, but sort of fallen through, or apartment purchase in Liverpool. So I wouldn't be able to case just dump my gear there and, and hop on a flight. So. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to miss our first oh, game. No. I'm, I'm pretty choked by it. Kieran, you've got enough loyalty points with the Baroness to miss to, to not go home one night, surely, haven't you? Yeah, it's, it, it's physically getting home. Oh. I, I can't manage oh. because the trains aren't running, so I have to go and spend more time in Liverpool, uh, staying in a, staying in a hotel. So therefore, I, I can't. You know, like like most blokes who are who are flying somewhere for 24, 48 hours. Yeah, you know, I, I can do that in a, in a Tesco carrier bag. Yeah, so it's got all, all of my all of my gear, including, of course, my Manscaped products. Yeah, of course. I I, I imagine, Kieran, knowing what our listeners are like, one of them even now is is emailing you to volunteer to get you there somehow. Um, this is Sunday morning, so I believe the Athens fans are due into your stadium sometime this afternoon to start putting the the banners up and getting ready to. <laughs> 
Because it takes it takes their fans as long to prepare for a game as it takes uh, Darren England to overturn a wrong decision. Um, there you go. Uh, I mean the atmosphere. The atmosphere on Thursday, Kieran. I, I'm guessing is going to be unlike any other atmosphere. Uh, and look at me being all generous to you, a Brighton. You, fan, I'm, but, I'm, I'm really. But the, I'm, really, I'm, I'm, the, I'm really emotional about that. Thank you very much. And the atmosphere is going to be astonishing, isn't it, Kieran? Yeah. I thought, I, I'm quite looking forward to it myself. Uh, our next question comes from Peter Lord. Um, it's the third question Peter Lord's had on this year. So I suspect uh, producer Guy, who has uh, elements of the uh, Mrs. Bouquet about him and his attitude to thinks that Peter Lord may actually be a, a real Lord. Uh, or he has a fondness for 1970s shoe shops. Who knows? Um, or cash for questions. <laughs> ah, of course, Kieran, with your forensic accounting brain, you've gone straight for it. How much are you paying in, Lord? Peter Lord says, my club, Forest didn't have a paying sponsor last year, but ended up with the UNHCR logo on their shirts for part of the season. Given that this is a free sponsor and should be applauded, would it be right to assume that the donation they made to the UNHCR as part of this deal would not come into FFP calculations as an expense? So they would get the PR kudos of having a charity sponsor, but the FFP side of things would be neutral, i.e. no additional expense. Yeah, well, well, Peter, well, first of all, yeah, fair play to Forrest for doing this because they, they could have just gone for the whole season with, with no sponsor. Um, with regards to their donation, under the profitability and sustainability rules, certain lines of expense are exempt from FFP. Infrastructure, academy, women's team, and community schemes. Now, I think that the donations which were being made by uh, Nottingham Forest Football Club to UNHCR would qualify as part of their community action. It's it's a much broader community than, you know, we tend to have quite a narrow focus, but um, they they will not be penalised from an FFP perspective with regards to this, uh, you know, very generous gesture, and uh, you know, I hope it's gone to you know, appropriate good causes. But that they they will not be uh, put in a worse position from an FFP perspective for doing so. Uh, our next question, Kieran, comes from Martin Adams, who lives in Portugal. Uh, as we established recently, Kieran, the uh, only language I'm nearly fluent in is Portuguese. In in that, I can say I'm sorry, I can't speak Portuguese in Portuguese which is the only thing I can say in Portuguese. So, Esculpa, now for all Portuguese. Martin Adams have been thinking, oh, it's just like being at home in Portugal. Um, if anybody's got a spare weekend, by the way, go to Lisbon. It's the most amazing city. Um, but Martin Adams says, I live in Portugal where the local professional football clubs survive financially, largely by buying and selling players. Uh, a few years ago, the big local clubs, including Benfica, Porto and Sporting Lisbon, each set up branded financial investment funds the purpose of the funds was to increase the pool of capital available to each of the respective clubs to buy new players. Each club set up its own tied funds. Each club's fund would invest exclusively alongside the club in financing player acquisition. Units in the fund were marketed and sold to each club's fan base and gave fans who were also investors an interest in the financial success in nurturing player talent. Would fund structures like this pass regulatory muster with the UK financial and football authorities and could there be an option for football clubs in the UK to increase the pool of capital they have available to finance player purchases? Right. I think this is an interesting one. There are fairly strict rules with regards to third-party ownership 
of individual football players. But if this is a if this is a broader fund, then I think we, we potentially could could be okay with that. I, I can certainly remember from a Brighton point of view, we used to have a a fiver a month fund, which which was set up by the fans, um, and that was used to buy a a winger called Rod Thomas uh, back in the you know, well back back in the last century. So th- there there is evidence of this type of thing taking place historically um, in UK football. I think you would have to make sure that it was approved by the appropriate financial bodies, but also the Premier League and the Football Association or the EFL. Um, and then it, it it would have some potential. Now, what would happen when that player was sold? You know, would, the, would the fund presumably get a share of the proceeds? That would be fine. What would happen if, if the player was sold at a loss, though? You know, do you have to go and contribute more? I think the small print of these... Uh, funds would would be intriguing. Uh, it, it, Martin is ex- absolutely right with regards to to Portugal's position. Portugal is by far the most successful seller of football players within world football in terms of the level of profitability that it generates. So it's something which could take place um, if it was run by the right people. I would certainly have a bit more. Uh, enthusiasm for it than the likes of some of the. I'm, I'm not. We're not calling them Ponzi schemes, uh, Kevin. But some some of some of the um, stock markets for football which have been set up, which involve no money going to the football club and therefore no investment in the operational activities. Um, I'm I'm not a huge fan of. This next question, Kieran, uh, it's it's a question you're you're going to love so much. I'm beginning to suspect you may have sent it under a pseudonym. It comes from Mark Collins, and Mark Collins says, I'm reading an excellent book called The Price of Football, and in it, the brilliant author comments that football clubs show very different information in their business accounts. Would it be helpful if some organisation, an independent regulator maybe, could require all clubs to show their financial information in the same format over a standard period? If this is not possible because of the huge variation in the size of clubs, for example, could it at least be standardised for clubs on a division-by-division basis? I appreciate this might not be popular with the bean counters, but would make comparisons simpler for us mere mortals. Now, Kieran, as anybody knows who's listened to this pod on a regular basis, the the presentation of information and accounts is something that's uh, very important to you, isn't it? Yes, I, I think as a fan... Uh, and it doesn't matter which which club you are a fan. Football clubs get some things easier than many other industries in the sense that you will have many fans who are also suppliers to the club and they will not explicitly but implicitly give the club additional credit if they're, if they're supplying goods and services on credit because, hey, it's my club, I've got a season ticket, and my family supports the club uh, and so on. So, so football clubs do benefit from their unique place in society. And as, as we've said with regards to the likes of Macclesfield Town and Bury and so on, um, it's not a case of if the football club goes bust, 
then you just move on to another football club. It, you know, it, it is it, it is a far closer relationship and it's a lifelong relationship. And therefore, in my opinion, I think football clubs owe something back to the fans. Now, it, this is a football finance podcast and there are there are people who come up to me and say, you know, look, mate, I, just, I just go along on Saturday afternoon. You know, life's tough, prices are going up, you know, th- things are not good in, in general in society. And football's my my ninety minutes worth of escape. I, I don't give a damn about football finance, and I say I absolutely respect your position. And also, sort of doing this show, I think we 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 both become a bit jaundiced and a bit a bit out of love with certain aspects of football as well. So I, I can understand that attitude. But at the same time, there are there are fans of every club who want to hold the owners to account, and it's a lot easier to hold people to account if there is a degree of consistency and comparability within the data that's that's published. So I understand where Mark Collins is con- coming from. At the same time, it's not a necessarily a case of one size fits all because different clubs have, have different ownership models. You've got you've got fan owned clubs, you've got clubs who are who are owned by hedge fund, you know, by funds, you've got clubs which are owned by high net worth individuals. Um my fear would be is that if you had a a standard format for a set of accounts, then that would be both the minimum and the maximum information that they published. Whereas there are some clubs who are absolutely brilliant. You know, the likes of Carlisle United, for example, who always publish a huge amount of detail. Um, so it, it can work both ways. But broadly, I, I'm totally in agreement. And for those those clubs that that don't publish income data, so therefore we you know how much is the club generating? Where's it generating the money from? How much of that's going in interest on on loans from the owners? I, I think that's that's an area which could be addressed. Could that be something which is within the remit of the regulator? Well, if we're going to move to a licensing system, then potentially, yes. And uh, I, I did get a message from uh, Tracy Crouch. Uh, in fact, just a couple of days ago, uh-huh. um, I, I can't, uh, I, I can't mention it on the show mm-hmm. because I think the yeah, producer guy has has sort of said. Tone it down a bit on occasions, lads. Mm-hmm. You know, this this is this is a family show, and we, and we absolutely respect that, and we are trying to be professional. And, and without doubt, swear, swear, Tracy Crouch is the sweariest woman I've ever met in my life, and that's <laughs> one of the many reasons why I love her to bits. Um, so I, I won't be repeating that. But she, I think she is is firmly of the belief that you know football clubs are again part of the community and, and need to be protected. And one of the way of protecting. Uh, the club is to have a de minimis amount of information so that we can hold the owners to account a little bit more easily. I'm going to channel my inner baroness now and say, well, why didn't you get Tracy Crouch to fly you to Marseille then? Um, I'll tell you what I'm very jaundiced about uh, in football, Kieran, at the moment. Uh, VAR checks that take so long, you have to turn the floodlights on before they're finished. (laughs) Still come up with the wrong decision. Um, and talking about independent regulators, Kieran, our next question comes from Larkin Hogel, who I can only assume is the Australian version of Peter Lord, because this is his third question this year as well. So to those people who have been waiting two, two years and haven't had one question asked, um, you clearly need to start greasing a few producer palms. Uh, Larkin Hogel says, if the independent regulator becomes, I bet Larkin, Larkin Hogel must fly Bonza Airlines, surely. 
You know, Larkin, Larkin will only fly Bonzer Airlines, I'm guessing. Um, Larkin says, if the independent regulator becomes a reality, could we see Premier League owners join together and appoint someone to an NFL commissioner type of position from where that individual would have the power to represent the clubs collectively against anything not seen to be in their best interest? In other words, could they counter an independent regulator by having their own independent regulator, Kieran, essentially? Well, I think clubs do have somebody who represents their interests, and that person is Richard Masters, who is the chief executive of the Premier League. Now, he is voted uh, into that position by the the members, by the shareholders of the Premier League, which each of the Premier League clubs has a single share. Um, and he represents the club's in, you know, nationally, internationally, but also with government agencies. And there has been communication between the Premier League and senior people there and the people who are uh, involved in the creation of the potential legislation with regards to football governance and financing regulations. So I, I think it would be duplicating uh, his role and also the independent regulator can still say, well, hold on, you know, we've got the power of legislation. The US government does not want to get involved in the NFL, does not want to get involved in the NBA. Um, and there are other issues there in, in the sense that the NFL commissioner is in charge of a franchise operation. So in the Premier League, there are three new members each year. So over the course of you know, three or four seasons, we, you could see a significant change with regards to the the makeup of the clubs in the Premier League. And therefore, if they want new regulators coming in, new commissioners, I think it could be quite complicated. So I, I think with regards to this, Larkin, we've already got somebody who, who does probably 90% of that role. Um, could it be put forward by the Premier League as part of their ongoing campaign to discredit the uh, the legislation and, and to, to, to try to say well such a what well, you know it's not necessary it's it's too costly uh, so certainly some of the the uh, the mud which the Premier League has been throwing at the uh, regulator proposals you know, along the lines of well you know FIFA will kick up a stink uh, in relation to this because you can't have government interference in football. Um, completely ignores the fact that we do have government interference in football. Yeah, you know, the fact that you or I, you know, no, that doesn't affect me anyway. You, we cannot drink alcohol at the football ground. Well, that's down to legislation. The fact that we've got all-seater stadia is down to the you know, down to government legislation and so on. And there's no indication that FIFA or UEFA is going to take away the ability of English clubs to compete in competition. So we already have that type of thing. So there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of briefings. Uh, we, we saw uh, a briefing as, as as recently as uh, I think last last Tuesday or Wednesday that the Premier League were willing to put a, um, another hundred and thirty million pounds into the pot of money with regards to what's available to the the EFL clubs um, uh, as part of their negotiations with the EFL, and, and therefore always going to be hunky dory. Um, from my understanding, uh, that's not necessarily the case. Mm. And I'll say no more than that. Uh, Guy Walton has one of those one club questions that we like on the show. Guy Walton says, I wondered if you could spread any light on financial goings on at Moss Lane and Altrincham FC. 
specifically a minority investment by US investment group Valcor Ventures, and probably not connected, the taking on of Mark Chappers Chapman to the board. We are punching above our weight, but are we on the cusp of being a Wrexham or of an AFC filed? And before you answer that question, Kieran, I'll point out to there may be some of our listeners around the world who are not aware that Mark Chappers Chapman is the uh, arguably, I would say, the best live radio presenter currently broadcasting um, on Five Live. And of course, since Wrexham, Kieran, every fan of every non-league club who has any external investment is now dreaming of being the next uh, Disney documentary and escaping from uh, into the, uh, the 92. Yes. Um, I used to live about 10 minutes walk from Moss Lane, uh, when I when I used to live in in Hale Barns, which is which is part of uh, Cheshire, and it, it's a great place to watch football. And uh, yeah, if, if I if I was doing nothing, I, I would pop down. But I, I've therefore got to know a few people around, and, and I, I've I've been in touch with the the secret altringarium. Um, we, we, we have we have a, we have a group one. of another one. Another one. Yeah, we we've got the secret broadcaster and the secret kit manufacturer and the secret policeman. Yeah, we we we, we've got a number of friends who who prefer to keep their their light under a Gary bushel. So let's (laughs) don't 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 Google him, kids. No, for the is a particularly unpleasant man who used to be the TV uh, reviewer for the Sun, uh, who once called me. a potato-headed irrelevance, uh, <laughs> which caused my mum to cry for two days and my dad to go, you're in the sun. Uh, <laughs> to, to be fair to Gary Borsell, I had said live on a TV show just three days before that, that because uh, uh, Gary Borsell was an exponent of the, what do they call, oi music, uh, mm. heavy metal music with some particularly unpleasant political connotations and I just had to say I, I would rather Gary Bushel was a mod because then uh, he could wear a parka that had a target on its back which would make life much easier so he was just getting his own back but anyway <laughs> just a little bit of social deviation social, not social deviation a bit of social commentary for you all there everybody <laughs> right so uh, our our Altrincham based source um, says Chappers is on board uh, because he lives in the area and, and and he recently finished his Masters of Sporting Directorship at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I indeed taught on that course. And uh, I had conversations with chappers. And I agree with you. Absolutely. Thoroughly decent chap. Um, it's a really well-run club. So a great place to have a board position. However, he's there as Mark Chapman, an, you know, a, a, a good local individual, not... Chappers, the football presenter. Alty are in their second season as a full-time club. So, yeah, they have been part-time in terms of wages. So investment is there to support that particular model as they continue to commercialise the club. They're nearly all volunteers, and financial sustainability is at the heart of what they do. They've got a new chief executive officer who has a strong commercial background. It was probably... It was probably... It was properly advertised, unlike most clubs. So they've been very professional. This investment will help that building of the club. I don't think they are any different from any of those clubs in the National League or who are one call away 
from Erexon. Yeah, they're all, and it's a bit like, yeah, you, know, you, you and I, yeah, we, we're both hoping for that call from Kylie, and it's and it's the same in the National League. So, I don't think um, they are punching above their weight. They are an example of working well with what you have, so weight doesn't matter. That's good to hear. Uh, the Wrexham story I know all about, Kieran. I, I have to say the I'm less aware of the AFC filed story. Is there, can you briefly tell us what's been going on there? Well, they, they've got a local uh, a local guy who's come in and has put in a, a shed load of money. I, I think what he's trying to do is accelerate the, the rise of the club through the divisions by underwriting losses. Whereas I think Everton, it was Hollywood Sprinkle. You know, the, the fact that you know, there's no way that Wrexham would have deals with the likes of TikTok and Aviation Gin and, and other global sponsors were it not for the, uh, the the presence of the owners. As far as AFC Filed is concerned, it, it's a local guy who's been successful and says, what else can I do with my money? I know. Let's stick it in the local football club and let's see where we, let's see how far we can take this ride. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by Manscaped. September is here, and we want to take a second to talk about self-care. When it comes to making an impression, proper grooming is essential to looking and feeling your best when you walk into a room. That's why Manscaped are committed to help men around the world walk and talk with some swagger this season with the best grooming tools on the market. Join the 9 million men worldwide, including me, who trust Manscaped by using the code PRICEOFFOOTBALL at manscaped.com to get 20% off and free shipping. Don't neglect your beautiful self and get right this autumn with Manscaped. For the sleekest version of yourself, Manscaped has you covered from head to toe, starting with their brand new Beard Hedger Trimmer. With one guard and 20 adjustable lengths, this device is the perfect travel companion fit to take care of your mane wherever you are. Next in line, who can forget about their signature Performance Package 4.0. Included in this ultimate grooming bundle is the star of the show, the Lawnmower 4.0, equipped with skin-safe technology to minimise nicks and cuts in all your sensitive areas. After all, guys, what can we worse the Nick Knackers. And you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code PRICEOFFOOTBALL at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code PRICEOFFOOTBALL. Hit the refresh button with Manscaped. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Howard Blanks which is a, a great name, and I like to think that Howard is possibly a, a postmodern ironic poet. It's the sort of name a postmodern ironic poet would have. And as it turns out that he's a Brighton fan, it's quite possible that he is indeed a postmodern ironic poet. Um, but he has a question that I think agitates football fans as much as anything else in modern football, Kieran. And Howard Blank says, Do you, actually, this might be a, this might be less, this could be a poem, actually, rather than a question. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it looks like modern poetry. Question, uh, Howard Black says, do you know how much revenue Brighton get a season 
for charging £12 to season ticket holders to transfer their ticket to friends or family. I spend £1,200 on two season tickets a year, and I think it's really cheeky that they charge me £12 to transfer every time I want to transfer a ticket because I'm on holiday or ill. Um, it is, I mean, this is you'll hear this from fans of every football club, Kieran, that are being charged. Yeah, because in the old days, when you had a, an actual physical ticket, you'd just give it to a mate. And now, of course, people are finding ways around it because they will photograph the bar or whatever they do. That implies I know people that do it. But you know, most clubs want you to go through the club to do it formally. Or, or to, you know, to, some clubs will buy the ticket back off you, then resell it. But it does seem a bit of a cheek, Kieran. And also, it's a bit of a faff to be more than anything else. Yes. I'm not sure that Howard is correct in his uh, accusation with regards to the club here. And, and I'll be honest, I've admired Rhymes with the club with regards to ticket allocations when, when you can't attend matches. But uh, in in respect of how much money have they, they generate, I, it will be an insignificant amount. Um, but you can transfer your ticket, I thought it was to, to anybody who is in the sort of the membership scheme. And you get one free transfer a year. But if you want, if you're likely to do more, what you do is that you, you pay a £20 fee and that will allow you unlimited amounts of transfers. So, you know, if due to personal circumstances that it's going to be five or six during the um, during the course of the season, then then that's the operation. And and for twenty quid, it it, it grates a bit. And you know, I've said on many occasions, in my view, if kickoff times are going to be changed because of the the demands of of broadcasters and football clubs benefit from that, and therefore we indirectly as fans benefit from that in the sense that it allows the clubs to be, to go out into the market and recruit more talent. Um, I feel that clubs should give you yeah, a 14-day window as soon as those things are announced where you can say, well, yeah, Sunday at 12.30, I, I can't physically make it for, for whatever reason. Um, there, there are, for the vast majority of clubs, uh, exchanges where you can say, well, I, I can't make the match and you put the ticket up in exchange. Now, that requires, of course, the match to be a sellout before those those particular exchanges kick in. And if it's Manchester United, if it's Spurs, if it's Everton, you know, those clubs will do so. For Brighton, it's a slightly more complex position because, you know, the size of the fan base is, there's not a huge waiting list for season tickets and so on. And if it's Bournemouth at home on a 5.30 on a Saturday, you might not have a sellout. You know, there might be, and therefore the club won't kick in as far as the scheme is concerned. So it, it does vary from club to club. It does cause frustrations from the club's point of view. It's not a money-making exercise, though. It, it's there, I think, really to try to just create a bit of a disincentive. Um, I, I know I've got some friends who support other clubs who, who, who live close to me, and they've had letters from the club to say, I, I noticed that you know, you've had your tickets up for sale on eight or nine occasions um, do, do you actually want a season ticket because you don't appear to be attending matches very oh. much yourself? So, you know, there, there, there is much more to this than meets the eye these days. All right. So you have neighbours that buy season tickets for Brighton and then don't. Oh, you're 
No, no, not for Brighton, for, for other clubs. Oh, for other clubs, I see. Okay, yeah, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Well, my, my sense of righteous anger has diminished straight away then, Kieran. That's, that's how I've worked all my life. I get really cross about something, realise I've got the wrong end of the stick and get uncrossed straight away. Um, it's been a long pod already, Kieran, but we've got a couple more questions to come, good questions. I may, I, I may, I may make an executive decision, Kieran, to not ask the last question and hold that over till next week because it's a good one, but it's a long one. But in the meantime, Sam Farrington has this question. Sam says, I've been wondering about how a Premier League footballer's personal finances work in regards to a short period of high earning and then a long retirement. The average salary for a mid-table Premier League side seems to be around the 1.5 million mark. If we assume an average player earns this for 10 years, they've pulled in 15 million quid. How do they effectively manage this income? They will hit the lifetime allowance within a year or two of contributions to their pensions which they then can't access for 25 plus years. How do they manage the rest of their money? Is it as simple as paying 50 to 60% tax on most of it, then shoving it all in ISAs and savings accounts to then draw down over the years? Or are there other options? I, I suppose there are probably as many options as there are players, Kieran, aren't there? There are indeed. Um, with regards to Sam's estimate of the average salary, I think you will find it's much higher than 1.5 million. It's probably closer these days to 3 million. Uh, but it could be that when Sam asked the question, it was <laughs> 1.5 million, knowing the length of the waiting list for this particular podcast. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and this, this is one issue. Um, and earlier this week, I was working for the Professional Footballers Association and they are concerned with regards to their their members and their post career financial arrangements, um, because you know, we both know ex players whose circumstances have deteriorated. Yes, yes. Um, and these are players that have played internationals that they've played for for clubs that are qualified for the Champions League, and so on. Uh, and therefore, the, the the PFA are trying to set up. Uh, they've set up a business school that their their, their education uh, provision for players um, is is significant. Uh, yeah, so I was I was fortunate enough for me. You know, I'm, 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 I have to do all I can to resist bringing in my autograph book when I'm teaching these courses. So I, I, the likes of Phil Jones, Jason Lee, Ben Davis, Paul Bracewell, Ben Roberts, many others. Wow, that's um, a good team. David Stockdale and so on. So, yeah. it's, so it's, it's but they're really enthusiastic and 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 they they acknowledge that you know for the retirement age as a professional footballer isn't necessarily their retirement age as far as their job opportunities within the football industry or, or in, you know, the broader in the industries associated with football, albeit broadcasting, kit manufacturer, technology, and so on. Um, in terms of what are they going to do with this money, you're absolutely right. There, there are many options. I know some footballers who have invested in property, some have invested in individual companies. And here... Yeah, we we often talk about football agents. There are good agents and bad agents. There are good financial advisors and bad financial uh, advisors. And, and my concern is that yeah, we know some players who have gone into these film schemes, have gone into other schemes, and they've ended up losing an awful lot because they've been badly advised. And during your career as a Premier League footballer, I can assure you, you've got a friend for every pound that you earn 
the minute you retire, you don't want to know. You know, these people sort of, you know, they disappear into the ether. So there, there are options for them. There is advice available. Um, I, I think their union is trying to step up with with regards to what's on offer to assist them, and uh, it, it's a case of liaising and and having relationships with the right people. But you know, it, it's a, it, it it is a minefield out there because how how do you know who's a good financial advisor? How do you know who somebody's a good agent with your interests at heart? It's really tough. And of course, Kieran, there are there are relatively few players who can retire at the age of 35 and then sit back for the next 50 years and just live on the interest because we know quite a few players who applied their trade in League One and League Two who retire at the age of 35 and then have to get themselves uh, another job um, yeah. to, to pay the mortgage, essentially. And it, I, I think we underestimate how difficult that must be sometimes for people that have been in, in football you know, probably since the age of five or have been in and around a dressing room environment, to suddenly to suddenly lose that takes a lot of readjusting. And, and to suddenly find yourself doing, um, for want of a better word, a more down-to-earth job must, must be difficult for some people. And I think, again, that's something the PFA should be looking at. And I know there will be, there will be a lot of people listening to this going, oh, boo-hoo, poor them. But it, it is a huge mental adjustment. I, I mean, I know so a very what, two household name sporting stars who haven't yet got over the fact that they're no longer playing their sport. It's a very difficult thing to adjust to. And I think the PFA, and it, it seems belatedly, Kieran, in the last five years, the PFA are really stepping up to the plate now to to look after the, the, the players who are no longer playing. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I saw uh, Maheta, who, who again has been on the show, who's the new chief executive. He gave one of the talks to uh, yeah, the players that I was also teaching. And, he is very much committed to their welfare and to uh, giving them opportunities. And and there is no boo-hoo, poor me from the players. I can assure you. Yeah, you know, they, they they say, well, yeah, oh, we acknowledge. I'm I'm yeah, you know, I am where I am in terms of my age at present. I've got another fifty years probably on the planet. I, I don't expect my earnings from football. And if you go back fifty years, if you take a look at the average earnings in nineteen seventy three, thirty four pounds forty seven a week. Yeah, you know, so you know, and that that was that that was sort of in, in the general population, not not the football population. Yeah, you know, and, and you think where we are today. So yeah, money deteriorates in value very rapidly, especially during periods of high inflation. Yeah, and back in the sixties and seventies, it seemed the players stayed around long enough to earn enough money to buy a pub when they retired. That seemed to be what ninety percent of them did. Alex Weir has our penultimate question, and Alex Weir says. With companies required by law to offer workplace pensions, does this mean players are required to be part of pension schemes offered by their club? And what does this mean in practice for very high earners? So um, a, a more detailed version, if you like, of Sam's question. Yes. Um, and again, if we look at the PFA, they have a pension scheme for their members. And that contributes £6,660 per player per year. And that's, yeah, that's a reasonable amount of money. But if, if you're only a professional footballer for, you know, for five, six, seven years, and, and, you know, and we, we, we've, we focus on players who have long careers, but there's, there's many that, that don't make it that far due to injury, due to the fact that there is a high, pretty high turnover um, as well. And that pension scheme is funded by a transfer levy. 
on all Premier League and, and EFL transfers. I think it's a 4% levy that, that goes into that. And the PFA is trying to extend that to uh, what can be available to uh, women players. It, it, as far as players' retirement was concerned, you could retire and draw down your pension as a footballer from the age of 35 with HMRC's blessing. But HMRC changed that particular rule in 2006, and now you have to be 55. So th- there, there there are pension pots available, that they tend to be more central than, than by club, but you, you do have to contribute to them, and uh, you, you have the additional uh, support of the PFA as well. Our last question, Kieran, comes from Phil Steedman, and it's one of those questions that I absolutely love. It's quite a simple question, but it's one that's never occurred to me before, which is odd, really. But Phil Steedman says, do players have their wages reduced when they receive bans for red or yellow cards since they are paid to play football and cannot fulfil these obligations in the stands? Or is there any significant financial penalty for being banned? The answer is, it depends. So each club will have slightly different contracts. Now, some clubs will penalise players if they they are suspended due to dissent uh, yellow cards because they say, we expect you to control your behaviour. If you are given a yellow card for a professional foul, for, you know, for want of a better phrase, Every session, you know, you're taking one for the team, so so it it, it will vary. Um, there are a, a normally a there's normally a a, a series of behavioural elements embedded into a contract, many of which are on things such as um, punctuality of players. You, you could if if you turn up to training regularly late, and and we know which players we're talking about here, they could have a potential fine from the club. And there are some unusual ones which are embedded into contracts. So if we take a look at Mario Balotelli, when uh, Balotelli signed for, for Liverpool, that was about eight or nine years ago, um, there was a, it wasn't a fine, it was the opposite of fine. If he was given a red card less than three times a year, he got <laughs> a million pound bonus. Jesus <laughs> because he is Mario Balotelli, and and you saw this, and it said, you know, for specific things like yeah, you know, no spitting. Well, yeah, yeah. that's so if you don't spit um, at the referee or an opposing player, and don't get red carded, you'll you'll get an extra million pounds. So to try to to try to nudge players into the right direction, I, I suspect with Mario Balotelli, in the heat of the moment, the last thing he's thinking about is. Oh, get an extra billion from this yeah so they clearly didn't have a no fireworks in the bathroom clause in the contract (laughs) but we've seen this in the last couple of weeks Kieran unusually with you know stories coming out of Manchester United's training ground that would normally be kept private where we see uh, you know fines being talked of for surly behavior for lateness in training lateness seems to be one that coaches take very seriously We've we've heard of um, players being fined for wearing headphones on team buses when they're not meant to. So uh, whether these fines are a big enough deterrent, I don't know. But I'm I'm quite interested in the Jaden Sancho situation, Kieran. It, it's sort of it's very unusual for these things to play out in public, isn't it? When it comes to football. Yes, and I think it is indicative of a club which has become a soap opera instead of a football club in in far too many aspects of the way that's being run. And, and I'm not here to 
to criticise the people in charge, but ultimately the culture of a football club is set by that at the, those at the top, and that filters through to all levels. And why are Manchester United underperforming? If you take a look at their, their spending on transfers and wages and so on, uh, I think you've got to look not necessarily at the coach or the players because they they are very gifted and very talented. Uh, but there were there were there were players yesterday who who gave up, and this is Manchester United, yeah. You know, and that that's and they gave up when they when they were getting stuffed at, at Anfield last season. And it's it's the same players, and you go well. There is something not right, and and it's and therefore you look upwards rather than downwards, in my view. I have some good news and some bad news for Jake Michael Widlake Hughes. Um, Jake, you've asked a very good question, but it's a very long question, and it will be a very comprehensive answer. It could could easily take as long as VAR took yesterday to not overturn a terrible decision. So. Um, we're going to hold your question over to next week, Jake, if that's okay, because it's already been a rather long pod. But it is a good question. We thank you for it, and we do look forward to hearing the answer. In the meantime, thanks to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to join them, that would be very kind of you. And if you'd like to make that small monthly contribution to the pod, you can get access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. Then you can go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. Our next live chat on our Discord channel available exclusively to our Ultras, which I still can't say without giggling, <laughs> will be on Thursday the 28th of September from 7 till 8 p.m. I had a reminder this morning via email that there's a couple of questions out there that we didn't answer from last time, Kieran, so we'll do that in the next couple of days. So Thursday the 28th of September from 7 till 8 is our next live chat for our Ultras. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at Price of Football. Dot com uh, And if Peter Lord and Larkin Hogel haven't often produced the money, you've got every chance of it being asked. Three dates have now been confirmed for our Price of Football live show in the coming weeks. The Winter Gardens in Blackpool on the 12th of October, the Lowry Theatre in Salford on the 22nd of October, and the Royal Yacht on Jersey on November the 7th. To get your tickets, go to priceoffootball.com. And finally, if you'd like to pre-order our new book, Unfit and Improper Persons, an Idiot's Guide to Owning a Football Club or one of our other books or get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt. You can also find details on that website, priceoffootball.com. We'll be back with our news pod on Thursday. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Uh, thank you, everybody who's, who supports us in all those variety of ways. And we're looking forward to those live shows. Uh, Kevin, you've, you've received a pre-publication copy of the book as has producer guy i haven't haven't you no no i'm i'm am i in the naughty step of bloomsbury i'm trying to work out what's going on well have you checked properly kieran because it could be behind all your other stack of freebies that you get from various (laughs) have you checked behind one of your bins i'll I'll, i've got I think we've got four or five different coloured bins. Of course you have. Yeah, you live so... in Sussex, Kieran. <laughs> I imagine you've got a bin purely to put discarded ceviche in, haven't you? <laughs> you can't do it. I, I always eat it all. You can't. You, you can't. Be... But I guess the, 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 the limes need to go somewhere. So I've got, I've got a separate lime receptacle. Yeah, but I mean, Kieran, why would you go to all that bother of pouring some lime juice over a bit of protein and then not eat it? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so there, there's another way that you can support the show and that's to give us a review 
uh, on your podcast app. It doesn't matter what you say. It just helps us in the charts. It helps us with the algorithms and persuading guests to come on the show. You could even say you would rather have the show presented by Gary Bushell and Mario Balotelli. I suspect <laughs> there could be a few fireworks <laughs> in that show. One of whom will be much better dressed than the other. Yes. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Buy some football.